I consider it a privilege to be here to open the word with you. I know many of you in the room, and that's just a delight to see the family connections. Greetings from Covenant Presbyterian Church, just a little bit north of you. I'm not used to talking about Palm Bay as being up there. <laughs> Normally I think of it as down, but uh, it's really good to be here. The word I'm going to read comes out of Colossians chapter 3. I'll be reading in the New International Version. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 14. It's a little bit longer than what you have in your bulletin because I want us to get a sense of the context. I also will be uh, reaching into some of those things uh, as I preach, but I'm going to be focusing on the first few verses in my sermon. And as I read, let's have a heart of listening, a willing attitude of listening and submitting ourselves to the text, to the Word of God. This is God speaking to us. Since then... You have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have had against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would send your spirit to illuminate us. That your word would powerfully speak to us. Father, prepare our hearts to receive your word. Lord, by your spirit, may we consider what it means to be in Christ, what that means for our lives. Speak through me, help me not to get in the way of your word for your people, and for us to sit at your feet together and learn from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So I remember with not a whole lot of fondness my uh, grade school days when I took grammar classes. You guys remember this back in uh, grade school and teachers were uh, trying to help us understand sentence diagramming and, and uh, prepositions and gerunds and, and all these rules and conditions. And uh, it was just baffling to me. I, I got through that as quickly as I possibly could in those days. I was so glad when that was done. Uh, all the exceptions and the exceptions to the exceptions. Um, and, uh, and then... 
after college, I w- was in the Air Force, and then I was called to the ministry, and I had to go to seminary. And part of Greek and Hebrew is we have to get right back into all the grammar stuff. And so I was faced with that again. Uh, not a whole lot of fun, but by God's grace, uh, he brought me through it. In grammar, there uh, it's interesting. Sentences have moods. And uh, there are a lot of these things. I'm going to be focusing on two of them that particularly show up in Paul's writings, and especially in this chapter, the indicative mood and the imperative mood. Um, and there are connections between them sometimes. The indicative mood is indicating something to be the case. It's just a statement of fact. Whether it actually is true or not is irrelevant. It's just a statement. Uh, for example, a car is coming. All right, An imperative is a command, a request, something that you say to someone else where you're expecting a response, an action, a change of some sort. Uh, and so an example of this would be, hey, get out of the road. All right. And so you can see how there can be connections between indicative and imperative. A car is coming, get out of the road. There may be other reasons to get out of the road, but that's a good one. That's a good reason. Car is coming. But the basic construction is this is true, therefore do. And we're going to see in this text a pattern, a powerful relationship between what God has done for us, is doing for us, and promises to do for us, and therefore what we are called to do and to be as Christians. In our text, we're going to find out that uh, I'm going to kind of categorize these indicatives into two categories, uh, one of them being where we are, where we are, statements about where we are, and then the second category, statements about who we are. And then we'll talk about what we do, therefore, as a result of where we are and who we are. And so my first point is that where we are, And where we see ourselves matters. Where we are matters. Uh, My wife, Michelle, by by the way, Michelle is here visiting uh, as well with me. And we have our two boys in the nursery. Um, So maybe we'll have a chance to meet meet, uh, several others of you um, afterwards. But we had some folks, some some friends over at our church for dinner the other day. And uh, we had not had them over uh, at our house before. And so uh, the guy calls calls me on my cell phone and says... um, I kind of got lost. I think I made a wrong turn. Can you uh, help me here? I'm not sure if I'm supposed to turn left or right on Fallon. You know, we live up off of Babcock. And, uh, and you know, he said, so, so should I turn left or right? Now, what do you think my question to him was? Well, bef- <laughs> where are you? All right. <laughs> uh, because it depends. Uh, you know, so um, in, in that case, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, I'm here. Oh, well, then you should turn right. Okay, so that helped. It helps to know where you are so that you can then take steps to get where you need to be. A different kind of picture. In war theory, uh, in tactics, uh, it's well known that elevation is a place of advantage in many circumstances. And so if you are a commander of a platoon and, uh, and, and you are uh, charging against uh, some enemy troops, uh, if you can get yourself in a position of elevation, you have an advantage because where you are matters on what you see and therefore what you plan to do. And so you can strategize, you can plan, and you can uh, have an advantage by what you see by being in a certain place 
uh, in a war environment. So where you are matters. Of course, in real estate, we hear the, the top three factors in making decisions about real estate. Number one, location. Two, location. Three, location. They should just simplify that and make it one statement, but I guess they're trying to emphasize it. Uh, but there is, there is a, a kind of a misconception, I think. I've, I've seen this um, as I've talked with folks. It runs in our circles, in reform circles. We have this doctrine uh, most, if not all of you, know about. It's called uh, total depravity. It's, in summary form, the idea that we in and of ourselves are totally unable to incline ourselves toward God. We need the regenerative work of God to work in our lives, to make us alive in him so that we can uh, respond by faith in him. And so we will defend that because we believe the Bible teaches that. It maximizes the grace and the power of God in salvation. But I think what happens a lot of times is we, even not even realizing it sometimes, we carry forward this attitude or maybe this assumption that the believer, the true believer, the regenerate person, is still totally depraved. And that is not the case. That is false. That is, that is false. And so uh, the true believer is no longer in a position where he cannot escape sin. The true believer is in a position where by the power and the grace of God, we can say no. Scriptures promise it. He will never give us more than we can bear. He always provides a way out. 1 Corinthians 10.13. He promises it. For the believer, we are not enslaved in sin. Romans 6. He sets us free from that. Now, we still do sin. But it does not mean we're stuck. And so the idea of total depravity is that, you know, the picture, one of the analogies that I was given um, early on when I was studying this and trying to understand it, uh, was uh, some people like to picture salvation as you're, you're lost at sea and, and, and uh, Jesus comes along in his, his rescue boat and he throws out a life preserver, but it's up to you to reach out and grab the life preserver. And total depravity says, no, we're so far gone that we are at the bottom of the sea dead. And Jesus has to come down. He has to dive into the water and come get us to save us and to make us alive. I like that imagery. Um, but what can happen is, as believers now, we tend to think of ourselves as down here still. And we are not realizing that where we really are in Christ is up here with him. Let's see this in our text, the first three verses. Notice the where language, where we are positionally. Colossians 1 3, 1 through 3, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You notice the language there, the position of authority that Christ is in. He's seated at the right hand of God. That is a place uh, where the prime minister would sit uh, next to the king. Uh, that is a place where he is, is delegated all authority for the whole kingdom uh, to execute judgment, to provide for the people, to defend against enemies. Uh, this is the place where we are in Christ as believers right now. The tense of these verses is we have been past perfect, past event with, with continuing effects into the present. Uh, this is good news. 
Because when we as Christians are living as if we are still totally depraved, it's, it's like we are, it's like we're in the desert dying of thirst and not realizing we're standing right next to an oasis that we can drink from. We are right there in a place with Jesus, in Jesus, where we have his divine power that gives us all that we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who calls us according to his grace and goodness, 2 Peter 1.3. We have all that we need in him. He says, your life is now hidden with Christ in God, in verse 3. Uh, Alistair Begg has a great uh, explanation of this, this idea of being hidden in Christ. What does that mean? Uh, he, he basically says that the, the real you, the true you, is not uh, fully apparent right now. There is more to come about where you really are. Spiritually, right now, as a believer, you are up here. But when an unbeliever comes up to you, they don't say, Oh, I, I see that you are united with Christ in the heavenly realms. Okay? Unbeliever doesn't say that. Okay, but there will be a day when that will be revealed. So there's a hiddenness to our life right now. There's a veil that will one day, one day be removed. There's an earthly tent uh, that will go away, and we, we get into our heavenly abode. And so we are now hidden with Christ in God. Knowing where you are spiritually is of tremendous advantage in our fight against sin. Do you see the logic of these verses? He says, since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above and set your minds on things above. In other words, he is not saying that you're down here and you need to look up. He's not saying that. He's saying, since you were up here, stop looking down. He's saying you are in a place where it makes no sense to look down at earthly things. Your life is not about earthly things. You are up here, therefore, look around you where you really are spiritually. This truth is confirmed in a lot of other places in Scripture. John 10, in verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them, out of, given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. We are in a place of security for those who are in Christ. We cannot be taken out. We can't even take ourselves out. If you are really in Christ, you wouldn't even want that if you are really in Christ. But it's so uh, encouraging to see that we are in a place where uh, we have everything going for us to say no to sin and say yes to righteousness. Ephesians 2.6 is kind of a parallel uh, verse on this Thought, it says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And the chapter before that, Ephesians 1, 19 through 23, a little bit longer passage. Uh, if you want to turn there, you can. I'm going to not spend a whole lot of time on it, but it's a great parallel passage, and it kind of unfolds some of this as well. Ephesians 1, 19 through 23. Uh, in this verse, Paul is praying that we may know God's incomparably great power for us who believe. He says, that power is like the working of his mighty strength, verse 20. 
which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is a powerful verse. If you ever uh, want to see the connection between the resurrection of Christ and your life, this is a great place to go. Because he is saying that the, the very power that raised Jesus from the, from the dead is available to us who believe. And Paul is praying that we would realize that. He's saying, do you understand as a believer where you are? What's been given to you? We have been raised with Christ. And so therefore, there are many implications to these things. It changes how we live, how we look at everything. Here are some implications. First of all, because of where we really are, Sin is completely out of place. Sin is completely out of place for the believer. It doesn't belong where we are, really. Uh, the only analogy I could think of is, you know, if, if one of my boys comes in, this hasn't happened yet, other things like this have happened, but comes in with mud caked on his shoes in the house and smears it all over the carpet, what are we going to do? Oh, hey, we're not going to accept that. That's, you know, that's messy. Come on. So to be in this house, we've got to have some standards. All right, second implication, because I am up here, I have this resurrection power available to me, and I am responsible to use it, to respond to it. We are responsible. We can't, we can't blame our sin on personalities, on circumstances, the way I was raised, my boss this, my circumstances that, my neighbor is bugging me. We can't blame anybody else. We have resurrection power to respond to God as he wants us to respond at all times. The question is, will we repent and believe that we have that power, that we have that ability in Christ, that we are in Christ, and that he's done this for us? This truth, thirdly, is incredibly encouraging. You know, God doesn't wait to raise us up on the last day, although there is going to be a completion of that, uh, of that event of us being raised. Our bodies will be joining our souls Christ comes again and everything will be revealed and we will be glorified. What a wonderful day that will be. Uh, But he doesn't wait for that day to raise us up. He raises us up now. And so when we as Christians feel particularly low, we're we're beaten down. We feel like Satan's getting the best of us. Our flesh is just overcoming uh, what we know we should be doing. Uh, the, The stream of the world and its values is just just raging against us. We feel like we're drowning. This can encourage us. We are not stuck. We have been raised in Christ. Let's live as if we live there and we are there. And so Paul doesn't just talk about where we are, but also who we are. Who we are matters. Again, suppose you are a commander of troops um, and you're at the top of a hill and uh, you know, you're, in, you're in the best position tactically to take out your enemies, uh, and then you suddenly realize, it's kind of a silly picture here, but then you realize that you're actually a grasshopper, not a soldier. That does not help you. You will not win against those armored battalions down there. 
So it's not just location that matters. It's also the kind of person you are, who you are. There's another misconception that relates to this. It's very easy to kind of get in a mindset or a a mode or a lifestyle uh, where we think of the Christian life as primarily being about what we do or how we act or how we present ourselves. Uh, We can even unwittingly reduce the whole Christian life down to uh, behavior modification. Um, We normally don't go all the way down that, but we have elements of this mixed in. Uh, I find this in my own life. I I see this sometimes in my parenting where I, I, I see that what I'm doing is, oh my goodness, I'm just trying to get him to shape up, not really change his heart. Okay, so parents can do that with kids. Uh, We can do this um, with employees, not really winning the person, just get the job done. Um, We can do this with unbelieving neighbors, okay, or just obnoxious neighbors, whether they're believers or not. Um, We hear them, uh, you know, with their loud music maybe, or they're doing things that are annoying us, and, and, you know, or we may talk to them and they're annoying, or they have filthy language, or this or that. Well, okay. It's, it's good to not like that, uh, but those are symptoms of an unbelieving heart. And so when we relate to neighbors, we have to go for the heart. And that means we sometimes have to take some hits on the outside. Otherwise, it's like putting Band-Aid on cancer. It's treating the symptoms and not the root. And so when we think of Christianity as behavior modification, as a set of appropriate things to do or not do, merely... It, it affects our witness. That's the, that's the kind of stuff we notice among unbelievers. And God has called us to, to be in the world and, but not of it, but we're to be salt and light. We're to be out there relating to people at the heart level without compromising in sin ourselves or compromising the gospel. In our text, if... If we were to gather together all the imperatives, okay, in other words, the things we are either called to do or not do, and if that's all we focused on, it would be a false gospel because there are a, a several lists of things, right, in the passage that I read. Don't do this. Don't do that. Do this. Do that. But if that's all we saw out of context, uh, it would be a moralistic gospel, which is a false gospel. Verse 5, stop your sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, idolatry. Verse 8, get rid of your anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, and lies. And verses 12 through 15, be compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, patient, forgiving, loving, peaceful, and thankful. I was talking with an unbeliever. This This was probably a couple years ago. And actually, I've heard this sentiment before. It was just pronounced in this particular case where he said to me, I, I just feel like if I were to come to Christ, then I would lose my identity. He, he said, I, I, I feel like I need to get right with God, but not yet. Okay, I kind of want to live a little, you know. And it struck me that he was not realizing a basic truth that God created us in his image, every human being, to reflect his glory and be satisfied in him. 
And he sent Christ to pave the way for that and do that for us and through faith bring us into that reality, our new self, the real self, the real you. And he wasn't seeing that that actually it's it's the other way around, that he thinks he's being himself by not coming to Christ, but he's really being this fake, false, self-lordship, I'm calling the shots of my life kind of person. That is not how he was designed to live. And if he were to come to Christ, he would be free. He would be opened up to life. He, he said, he used the phrase, you know, if, I feel like Christianity is like a straitjacket, you know? Dude, do this, don't do that. And, and I, I, you know, I, I, I tried to take into some passages and, and uh, communicate this idea that, no, actually, obedience to God is the most liberating thing a person could ever do. We need grace. We're so far gone, we can't do it on our own strength. We need God's help. But it is a freeing thing to be made alive, to be able to worship him and live for him and honor him with our lives. That is liberating and satisfying, and that is our true self. We are most fully alive when we are in Christ. You are most fully yourself when you are made new in Christ. And so another implication here is that when, when we Christians engage in sin, we are acting contrary to our new nature. We are putting on clothes that don't belong to us, that don't befit our character, who we are. And so the overall exhortation here is that since God has made you a whole new person in Christ, live in such a way that you reflect your new identity. And since he has placed you in the heavenly realms, live in such a way that reflects your new location. Uh, Third point is what you do does matter. Okay? Where you are matters, who you are matters, and what you do matters as well. Um, there is another misconception. Um, we looked at this misconception in the previous point that, that, uh, that only what matters is, is what you do, okay? or what you do is all that matters. This second misconception is kind of the, the, the opposite of it, which says what you do doesn't matter at all. This is the idea that, well, hey, I'm saved by grace. I've repented and believed. I walked the aisle, you know, signed the card, did what, you know, did my thing, my commitment, got baptized, whatever it may be. All right, so I'm in. I'm good. I can just live however I want, okay, because it's all by grace. And God just forgives me when I mess up, okay? That is a false gospel as well. Because God is not, it did not just, you know, salvation is, is so broad. He didn't just save us from hell and punishment. That's not just what he did, although that's awesome. He saved us to something. He saved us uh, to be something, to be for him and to honor him with our lives, to be a new kind of people. He saved us for himself. He bought us for his purposes. Uh, And so this shows up in several places in our text. Um, And so as as I go through these, uh, you think of these as connections of why it matters what I do. Verses 1 and 2, set your minds and hearts on things above. Why? Because you've already been raised. We looked at that. Verse 5, he says, put to death your earthly nature. Why? Because in verse 3, we have already died to those things in Christ. It, it's kind of paradoxical. He's saying, put to death things that are dead. That, and the paradox of that should sink in a little bit and help us to realize, wow, I have actually died to Christ. And so when I, as a Christian, 
find myself in sin or negligence or apathy, whatever it may be, just sort of not caring or not doing what we should be doing, what we're doing is we are actually taking sins back off the cross and kind of, all right, come back, come back. You know, we're kind of trying to raise them up again. They've already been crucified. And so it's against our nature to do that. Verse 8, rid yourselves of these things. Why? Because you've already taken off your old self and put on your new self. Verse 12, clothe yourselves with, uh, and then he lists uh, several character traits, uh, Christian character traits. Why? Because you've been chosen by God. You were made holy for him. You are dearly loved by him. It makes no sense for a king to be dressed in pauper's clothes. And so we are made alive by him. We are placed in a position of, uh, of authority to rule over, okay, uh, Genesis, to, uh, to rule over uh, our, our bodies, not let our bodies rule over us, to rule over our sin, okay, by repenting and believing and by walking with Jesus. Uh, we were made to be kings, redeemed in Christ, and queens, Jesus talked a lot about this idea, John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. There is no such thing as a fruitless Christian. There are those who claim to be Christian. But the Bible says there is no such thing as a fruitless Christian. Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 15, Jesus says those who are not bearing fruit, those branches will be cut off. Those are churched people, religious people, who are not really there, not really in Christ. Luke 6, 43 through 46, he uses this uh, uh, agricultural analogy. He says, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick uh, fig trees from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. And then he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And so what we do matters. Who we are matters and what we do matters. We don't have time to walk through all these virtues and vices that are listed, but let me just pick a couple, a few. Um, Verse 5, sexual immorality, the reason we are called to put sexual immorality to death, whether it be adultery, whether it be fornication, whether it be lust, it's not just that it's bad behavior and it's socially unacceptable, but that our bodies have been bought at a high price. We have been redeemed by the Lord and we are to be used, our bodies are to be used as instruments of righteousness, Romans 6. We have been bought for a different purpose than to be used for our own selfish desires. Verse 5 also, greed. The reason we should stop being greedy is not just because it's a good idea to not be greedy, Okay, Um, but that there's nothing we need that Christ has not already provided. He's already made us full of his grace, which is sufficient. Uh, Filthy language. The reason we stop slandering, using filthy language, lying to people is because our mouths were redeemed by Jesus for a different purpose, to build others up according to their needs and not to tear down. That's the reason. We were meant to reflect him. Disunity, this is kind of an odd verse when you first read it, verse 11. Okay, he lists all these different kinds of people, different categories, social categories of people. 
this is a verse about disunity and unity. Okay, so the reason we should fight disunity is because Christ is all and is in all. He is unified, so those who are in Christ should be unified. Uh, he redeemed us to be unified in him. He did not intend for us to define ourselves by social categories, socioeconomic categories, ethnic categories, national categories, um, whether you're slave or free or this kind of person or that kind of person. That's, why, that's what he means by that. Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, those who are in Christ are to be unified in spirit with him and with one another. Jump down to verse 13, bearing with one another. The reason we bear with one another and we forgive one another is that we're forgiven in Christ. And, and just a, a side thought on that bearing with, you know, we, we t- kind of think of the big things in our lives. Okay, do I need to forgive anybody for something? Do I have a grudge against someone? I need to get that right. Okay, that's important. But I love how he says here, uh, bear with one another. These are the small things. These are the irritating things, the little annoyances that the husband or the wife does or the kids are doing or uh, the neighbors do, whatever. These are the little things that we don't think of as, well, I need to forgive, I need to uh, tolerate or whatever. But he's saying bear with one another because Christ has done that for us. And so with all these things, whether they be vices we're to put off or virtues we're to put on, we do them because it's part of who we are now. We were, we were redeemed in order to image God, to reflect God. We were redeemed for that purpose. Then that is our highest satisfaction. And acting contrary to that not only brings harm to us and others, but it brings harm to the rep- reputation of God. We're not showing who God really is in his character uh, when we do that. So um, as a wrap-up, let me just quickly address... Uh, I don't know where you are. You know, I, I know some of you really well. Um, I have no idea who's in this congregation, where you are spiritually. You know, if, if you have kind of grown up in the church or maybe not, but you're unsettled, you're not sure about this whole message of Christianity, what's this all about, you know, I, I just encourage you to consider the gospel. You know, maybe you've been suspicious of Christianity. Uh, maybe you've seen the hypocrisy and the moralism, okay, the, just the mere do-gooderism, <laughs> Cultural Christianity, okay? Uh, maybe you've seen that. You've seen right through it. Um, you know, perhaps you've been like my friend I was talking about earlier. He was afraid to become like a cookie-cutter Christian. Well, I'm just going to lose my identity, my personality. I'm not, not, that's not me. Uh, I'm not there right now. You know, uh, that is false. It's a lie. I, I appeal to you to find out who you were meant to be by turning from your sin and embracing Christ, who is your life. He's offering himself to you. Embrace him. Trust him. St. Augustine said, O Lord, you have made me for yourself, and my heart is restless until I find rest in you. For believers, three things. Repent of bad behavior. Repent of good behavior when it's not coming out of a heart of love. When it's not coming out of a regenerate heart or a Christian heart. Repent of no behavior or too little behavior. Okay? Um, Obviously, bad behavior, wherever that shows up in your life, walk away from it. It's grace. God's grace teaches us to say no to all unrighteousness, Titus 2, 11 through 13. Because we are in Christ, we can say no to sin. Uh, repent of good behavior when it only comes from a desire to look good on the outside. Because God is after your whole self, not just 
your external behavior. And repent of too little behavior or or no behavior. In other words, wherever you find in your life apathy, laziness, uh, not loving your neighbors, not doing the things you should be doing, not loving one another, not pursuing people to make reconciliation, wherever that may may be needed, uh, go in that direction, move forward in that direction, because that's who you are in Christ. And so the changes that I'm calling all of us to make, regardless of of where you are spiritually, uh, cannot be achieved in our own strength. That's why Christ had to come down to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He died the death we should have died. He lived the life that we should have lived. Uh, And so as we come to him humbly by faith, we will find that he makes us alive and he renews and sustains us in our joyful obedience. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we struggle with this so often whether it be with legalism, whether it be with license. Uh, God, we just come to you. We thank you that your word is so clear, that you are for us and not against us. You have raised us up with Christ, that our death is your death, your life is our life, and we have so much, so much grace in Christ. Lord, help us to, to uh, turn from our, um, from our discouragement, from our apathy, from fears, uh, from doubts, and find joy as we embrace you and want to live for you. And where we don't want to, <laughs> uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us want to. We need your grace. Fill us by your spirit to be the people that you have called us to be and created us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.